You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, go to sojournmontrose.com. Amen. All right, so we're going to dive right in here uh, to 1 Peter chapter 3. But before we do that, what I want to do is just acknowledge something really quickly. Um, There are two particular verses in here, verse 20 and verse 21, that are confusing um, in terms of the way they are worded, in terms of some of the things that we might understand them to mean if we don't have uh, sort of a good, a good knowledge base or a good study of what, of what the original language actually says here. But I'm not going to address those today. I'm not going to get into those nuances for, for one reason and one reason only. I want us to be aware of what is taking place in the greater picture of what Peter is trying to accomplish than to get bogged down by those nuances. So I'm going to make this offer. If you have questions about the way those things are worded, or if you are confused by what that means, um, please feel free to come and talk to me after the gathering. I have studied it. I am aware of it. I'm not just trying to sidestep something, but I am trying to get us to a, to a place um, that ultimately would not be served by spending a lot of time talking through those things. Okay? We good? Awesome. So, um, here's what we're going to do. 1 Peter 3:18 says this, For Christ also suffered... Once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Now, if you've ever heard me preach before, you know that we like to do a lot of work around the context of what what it is that's taking place in Scripture. But before we do that, I want to focus in, just narrow in on this one idea that Christ suffered. Right. So, So the premise of this morning's sermon is that the kingdom of God is established by suffering, right? And the first clue or the first hint that we have of that is that it's established first by Jesus' suffering, right? That as 1 Peter 3.18 tells us that he has brought us to God by his suffering, that in that act, that in Jesus taking upon himself suffering, we now are brought into the presence of God, able to stand in light of Christ's work on our behalf. And what I What I don't want us to miss is the significance, the level at which Christ suffered on our behalf, right? Because I think a lot of times maybe we use that word and we we throw it out there and we say, yeah, Christ suffered. And maybe we think about one specific moment in Jesus' life like the cross, or maybe we think about other smaller moments. But what we don't often see is, is essentially a picture when we zoom out and look at the entirety of Jesus' life and ministry, including his incarnation, his coming to us, and the suffering that was involved in each and every step of the way. And so I just want us to, to ponder those for a minute, right? Let's, let's remember for a moment what, it, what exactly took place in Jesus becoming flesh, right? We, we talked just a few weeks ago from Philippians chapter 2 about how Jesus was in the very form of God, that he was in the presence of God, that he was in this eternal communal relationship in perfection, right? And he was being worshipped by angels and and anyone else who happens to be in heaven, that he's receiving worth and worship, all of those things that are due him. And yet that in that moment, that in that moment when, when God says to Jesus, I'm sending you, Jesus accommodates. That Jesus in that moment condescends, right? That condescension, um, he comes down and he takes upon himself flesh. That which would, could not be contained in flesh. That 
which could not even be described in the language of those who are contained in flesh, is now brought into our world, into our body, into our physical likeness to experience that. Right? The great level at which Christ condescended himself. That was, that was a moment of suffering. That was a moment of suffering for him. Jesus also suffered in temptation, right? And this is actually really closely tied to Lent. In that Lent, the, the first 40 days before Easter, excluding Sundays, um, is a time in which we recall that Jesus was tempted also for 40 days by Satan in the desert. Right? But he suffered in that temptation. In fact, we, can, we, we don't know exactly what that looked like or how that took place, but we can know this because Hebrew tell, Hebrews tells us that we have an empathetic high priest who has in every way suffered and been tempted in the ways that we suffer and are tempted in our lives. We know that Jesus also suffered in his physical body, right? That, that, that by taking upon himself flesh, he walked into all that we walk into. So the illness and the discomfort of walking in human flesh belonged to Jesus. He suffered in those things. We saw that Jesus suffered rejection for his nonconformity to the prevalent cultural ideals, right? I mean, we see time and time again that Jesus comes and he does some amazing miracle and a crowd begins to gather and then as soon as he begins to preach that he is the Son of God, as soon as he begins to preach that the kingdom of, his, of God is at hand and that we must repent and believe, the crowds begin to dissipate. That Jesus suffered rejection for what he believed. That Jesus suffered rejection for the truth that he proclaimed, the way and the manner in which he walked. And of course, the climax of Jesus' suffering is the suffering that he walked in at his crucifixion and his death for righteousness' sake, that he was unwilling to compromise on the truth that he was the Son of God. He was unwilling to say something other than the truth in order to escape that judgment. But let's not miss the suffering of what Jesus experienced on the cross because often we think of it in purely physical terms. And although the crucifixion was a heinous death, certainly, and although I'm sure it was physically excruciating, we have to understand that Jesus at that moment is suffering an eternal spiritual reality that is beyond anything that we could comprehend. You see, because Jesus and God the Father and God the Spirit had existed in this perfect communal love for one another from eternity past, and in that moment on the cross, He became rejected by that community in order that we might be allowed entrance into it. That his father looked upon him and forsook him. That's why Jesus cries out in that moment, my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Second Corinthians, if you were at Ash Wednesday, explained it for us very well where it says that he made him who knew no sin to be sin that we might have his righteousness. Jesus suffered as righteous for those who were unrighteous is what it tells us here in 1 Peter 3 that Jesus suffered injustice and instead gave his people the justice that he deserved. Now here's the thing, this, this may seem for us, at least in terms of the story, uh, like, like we've kind of hit a, a, a disengaging portion, like a portion where it, it kind of the, the whole logic, the whole flow of everything kind of breaks off. It's a plot twist that maybe we didn't expect because we just spent the past eight weeks or so talking about how this king has come. 
and how he revealed himself in power over the physical realm by healing the blind, by healing the leper, by healing the lame. He revealed himself as king over the spiritual realm by casting people's demons out, by relieving them of their spiritual ailments. We saw him transfigured on the mountain before Peter, James, and John. That there in his glory, he showed that not only Moses, but also Elijah were subject to his lordship. The king is here. And most of us, when we think of kings, particularly kings that are worthy of our extolling them, we think of those who are victorious, those who are conquering those who come and display their power and might by subjecting the world to their rulership, don't we? And yet here what we see is that this king has not come to do that thing. He has come instead to suffer and to die in our place. The kingdom of God is established by, first and foremost, the suffering of Jesus. But so Jesus has brought us to God by his suffering. But what I want us to do now, now that we've acknowledged that, is come to an understanding of why it is that Jesus would place sort of this little parenthesis in his book and why he would do so in this particular location in his book. And what we're going to see ultimately is that, is that although Jesus has brought us once and for all into God's presence through his suffering, he also brings us daily to God through our suffering, right? So the, the kingdom of God is established by Jesus' suffering first and foremost, but it is also established by our suffering. I'm going to take a few moments to explain that. If you'll go to 1 Peter chapter 1, you should just turn over a page. It might even be on the same page. But 1 Peter chapter 1, I'm just going to read a few verses from, uh, from that first chapter and think of it this way. This is the thesis statement of, of the whole letter that Peter is writing. This gives us our context. This gives us the frame of mind and the purpose for which Peter is writing. And this is what it says. Verse 3 starts like this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be re revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now, this is the key, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So here's the thing. First Peter is a manifesto on how to suffer well as a follower of Christ. That's what he's doing. Peter is writing to this, to this group of people, to this group of churches in uh, this particular region who, who have experienced up to this point great disdain from the culture around them by virtue of the fact that they believed in Christ, by virtue of the fact that they sought not to be conformed to the ways of the world, but to be conformed to the ways of their Savior, their King, right? Well, here's, here's what I want us to understand. Peter is not just addressing our general suffering. 
Now, make, make no mistake, God is concerned with all of our suffering. Right? We, we've talked about that before, how, how God is intimately concerned with the fact that we suffer on every level. And we can know that by the fact that the end of history that ends up in this great and glorious kingdom where God rules is devoid of any suffering, right? So we can know that he's concerned with that. But, but Peter's primary purpose in writing this is to help these people who are suffering for the sake of righteousness to endure. That's, what, that's why he's writing, right? These churches, they're feeling pressure from the outside, pressure to conform to the culture, and Peter is saying, no, stand firm, suffer well for righteousness' sake. And just to back that up, I, I want to read a couple of verses, back up a couple of verses in chapter 3, just to give us again this same context. Verse 14 says this, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. So again, Peter's very clear about what he is writing about here. He's talking about a group of people who are suffering for following Jesus specifically. And what Peter's going to do for us in the, in the few verses um, after that is show us exactly what that looks like. He's going to give us some, some clear tangible uh, sort of expectations in which we can walk in a way that honors Christ through our suffering. And this is what he says. In your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for, the, for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So we're starting to get a, a clear picture, a clear picture as to what Peter is trying to accomplish, right? He's writing to a group of people who are suffering for following Jesus. He's telling them exactly what it looks like to walk in that way, right? He tells them to walk without fear of these people. He tells them to honor Christ in the way that they walk through suffering. He tells them to be prepared to have a defense for the hope that is in them when they walk through the suffering. And they are to do so with gentleness and with respect. So I think we're just going to get very... Um, very personal about the reality, um, I think, of, of the American church and even just, I think, our lives in general, my life, certainly. The problem with the American church is not that we aren't cool enough, don't have enough lighting, produ production isn't seamless, preaching isn't relevant, or the Bible isn't progressive enough. It's that our people are either, A, operating under fear and are both unwilling and unable to defend their beliefs, or they dishonor Christ by operating without gentleness and respect. But those are the two poles kind of of the Christian experience here in America where you have people who are, who are so removed from the culture that just want to stand out and lob grenades at the moral degeneration of our culture and just sit in their sort of high and mighty ivory tower and blame and, and, and mock those who are outside the faith. That although they are standing for the truth of Christ as the way, the truth, and the life, they do so in a way that dishonors Christ, in a way that is devoid of gentleness and respect. And then you have the people over here that are so worried about making sure that everybody likes them, 
They're so worried about being disdained by the culture around them. They're so worried about what other people might say about them that they both do not have, ha- have a defense for the hope that they have, and they, even if they do, they are unwilling to share it. And yet often the reality, as we've talked about in Jesus, the, the, the true way, right, is almost always somewhere here in the middle. The truth is almost always somehow a combination of those two things where we are, yes, unwilling to compromise. We want to be found fully in allegiance to Christ and to His truth. We want to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, not conformed to the world. And yet at the same time, we want to be gentle and we want to be compassionate. We want to love and we want to serve others. And we want to do so in such a way that bespeaks the honor and the gentility and the compassion of Christ Himself. And I think, as always, we can always look for an example of this best in the life of Jesus, right? Again, we talked about earlier how he would often draw crowds by the good works that he did, right? He was esteemed, he was well-liked, and then he would preach this gospel that is, that is glorious and yet difficult, right? The kingdom of, his, of God is at hand, repent and believe, right? The rich young ruler comes and says, I, what must I do to gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, Sell everything that you have and follow me. Right, so Jesus is bold in his proclamation of the truth. Right, He has 5,000 followers and he has no problem speaking a truth that he knows will ultimately lead to the majority of those followers leaving his presence. And yet at the same time, at the same time, we see Jesus look out over Jerusalem, this people who had rejected him, who had denied him, who had reviled him, who had, who had called him an apostate. And he says, how I've longed for you. How I've longed to draw you underneath my wing as a hen does her chicks, and yet you would not have me. And so we see Jesus' utter willingness to preach the truth because he knows the truth is what's best for us, and yet we see his utter compassion for those who revile that same truth. And the best possible example we have of that is in Jesus' most climactic moment of suffering, that when Jesus on the cross is not only experiencing the physical suffering of the cross, but also experiencing the spiritual suffering of being denied by the Father, that in that moment, rather than turning and being angry at the people who are about the business of crucifying Him, He instead says, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. And so in that moment, we see again that Jesus is utterly committed to the truth, utterly committed to living the perfectly righteous life that we could never live. And yet at the same time, he is utterly and entirely compassionate and gentle and kind even to those who would persecute him, to those who would cause his suffering. And so brothers and sisters, we need to learn this morning that suffering is both necessary and anticipated for those who are righteous. That if we want to follow Jesus, then we should expect and not be surprised when we are derided by the general culture because we believe. When we hear words like, you're on the wrong side of history, we should not be surprised by that. We've enjoyed relative esteem because of the veneer of 1950s Protestantism in the United States, but that is currently changing, if you haven't noticed. 
But brothers and sisters, we do not need to be surprised. And we don't need to have fear. We can endure it while simultaneously honoring Christ, defending our belief with gentleness and with respect and in such a way that those who revile our good behavior in Christ will be put to shame, knowing that it is better to suffer for good than to be found doing evil in God's sight. So again, let's get back to this question. Why? Why is this here? Right? Most of 1 Peter is Peter saying, do this, operate with honor, operate with gentleness, respect, be kind. You know, verse 4 says, I'm, I'm sorry, chapter 4 says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, right? Live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The time has passed, suffices for doing all those things that we have done, right? So he's giving very clear instruction. This is what you should do. This is how you behave in in the moments of suffering. This is how you behave on the margins of society, even though you are cast out. So why, why in this moment does Peter give us a portion of text where he reminds us that Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Well, what we've seen so far is that that. This kingdom of Jesus is established first by Jesus' suffering, that he has brought us to God by this suffering. We've also seen that it is established by our suffering, right? That he brings us daily to God through our own suffering. That as um, chapter 1 told us, that we are like gold being refined, right? That we are going through the fire, knowing that we will arrive on the other end, presentable, holy, blameless, and righteous before God. But I think what Peter is doing here in these brief verses from 18 to 22 is he is showing us that he will bring us to God finally in whose presence we will no longer suffer. That if all of 1 Peter is a manifesto on how to suffer well, verses 18 through 22 are the strength from which we gain the ability to do those things. I want to read from Romans chapter 8. Um, briefly, because I think that this gives us a good picture um, of what it is that Peter is trying to communicate to us. I'm just going to kind of bounce around some verses, so you can follow along if you want, but um, I'm going to start in verse 18, and it says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Jump down to verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Brothers and sisters, what Peter is trying to get us to understand by this, by this quick little excerpt from 1 Peter chapter 3 is that all of our present suffering is as the pangs of childbirth. Now here's the thing. Maybe this speaks a little bit more to me because my wife is about to have a baby, right? Um, but 
there's this really weird thing that, you know, Lord willing, you get married and, and, and he graces you with the gift of child, which they are a gift, by the way. Um, I feel like most people don't think that for some reason. They're like, I won't, I won't tell you the story. Anyway, <clears throat> ask me about it later. I had a great conversation with my barber. Um, but anyway, I went to, we, just recently we finished up our birthing classes, and, and those are all kind of weird for lots of different reasons. But, but ultimately what you are faced with in that time is the reality that, um, at least from my perspective, my partner, my wife, my love, is going to endure the kind of suffering that I will never be able to understand. That in that, in that moment, there's a, a physical reality that defies physics, um, <laughs> right? <laughs> that, there, that that moment is going to be, it's going to be unreal. <laughs> and that in that moment, seriously, that in that moment, my wife, my beautiful, lovely wife is probably going to look at me and she's going to say, baby, I can't do it. I can't. I can't do it. I, I can't do it. And I'm going to I'm going to go to God and I'm going to say God why like can we just can we be done with this can it be over please please can we be finished And yet there's going to be a moment after that when that little girl comes out and when she holds her baby and when I hold my child and I get to look at her and I get to say this is my child in whom I am well pleased and I get to pray over her and love her and in that moment all of those sufferings will be like a daydream in that moment they will be all together forgotten there's not going to be people in the waiting room going man I wonder how Nicole is doing I you know I I uh I know that that was a really painful process. They're not going to be dwelling on that thing. They're going to look at this baby and they're going to say, look at this beautiful thing that has taken place. Look at this. What 1 Peter and what Romans and what really most of the New Testament is telling us is that for those of us who are believers in the room this morning, that all of our pain is just like the pain of childbirth in that it is leading to something that is inexplicably beautiful and wonderful beyond our ability to ever describe in human words. That we will experience the fullness of God's presence apart from His wrath because our mediator has already made right all that we made wrong. In Christ, suffering no longer produces despair, but rather hope. Our suffering, brothers and sisters, especially for following Jesus, when we suffer for following Jesus, it is both an assurance that we belong to Christ and it is evidence that He is refining us to be more like Christ. And what, what Peter does in verse 22, although it seems small and short and insignificant in the grand consequence or, or sequence of First Peter, is he says this, that we have an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Christ has the ability to bring this reality to bear for us. 
He has the authority. He has the power. It is His. He has established His kingdom first by His suffering. He's going to deliver us into His kingdom perfected through our suffering. And He is going to bring us to a reality in which there is no longer any suffering. And so Christian, I think there's, I think there's three things that, that Peter ultimately wants for us when we read this. The first thing I think he wants for us is that he wants us to feel, and I mean viscerally feel confident in Christ's establishment of this kingdom, that we can feel certain that the suffering that he supplied for our unrighteousness is full payment for us. I think he wants us to feel that, like legitimately that, that confidence to walk in that. I also think there's something that he wants us to know. I think he wants us to know that our suffering is not purposeless. That our suffering for righteousness' sake is a refining pain. That as gold enters the flame and emerges refined, so we enter the trials that assail us. Jesus suffered as righteous for the unrighteous. Brothers and sisters, we now suffer as unrighteous who are being made righteous, which is glorious and good news, knowing that at the conclusion of our duty here, it will be said of us, well done, good and faithful servant. And then I think the, the third thing that he wants us, for us, I think, from this text, is he wants us to actually be able to do that which we've been called to do. That when in verse 14, he tells us to have no fear of them, to not be troubled, to in our hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy, to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, to do it with gentleness, to do it with respect. What Peter is doing for us in verses 18 through 22 is showing us the location from which the strength to be able to do those things actually comes. That it comes from being secure in the fact that Christ supplied the righteousness that we couldn't supply and that he has now been elevated to the right hand of the Father with authority over all things to deal out both forgiveness and strength as he pleases and he gives it to his people in such a way that they will arrive glorified before the throne. And that is why we can read Romans chapter 8, those verses that always freak us out a little bit and be so excited. When it says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Brothers and sisters, every moment that we suffer for the name of Christ, every moment that the culture tells us to think one thing and we stand on the truth of God's word. That is a moment in which we become more like our Savior Jesus, and that is a moment in which we come closer. We come closer to that day in which we arrive before God and our suffering is finished and it's all concluded and we stand in his glorious presence and in the unity of all the believers from all times and from all places proclaim that he is good and that he has done good. And so my hope, my prayer, brothers and sisters, is that we really would here at Sojourn, that we would be confident in that reality, that we would feel that confidence when we walk into those awkward conversations and the topic of Christ comes up. 
and we walk into our offices and our integrity is called into question and we walk into those situations where, where it demands that we speak of the good news of Jesus and that we would be confident that it is good news. My hope would, would be that we would know as sojourners that our suffering here is not purposeless, but that it is purposeful in accomplishing all that Jesus came to accomplish in the establishment of his kingdom, where one day it will come finally and fully. And third and finally, my hope is that we would gaze upon Christ's example of righteousness and that we would let that give us the confidence and the ability to actually live in such a way that we are set apart from the world in terms of our holiness, but we are holy in the world in terms of our witness to the glorious might and majesty of our King Jesus. And that we would follow Jesus in the valley knowing that the mountain of his presence, the mountain of his transfiguration awaits all of us. And we can follow Jesus knowing that he himself, in that most beautiful of sermons on the mount, said to his people, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom. Let's pray.